Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Good morning. Uh, I appreciate the invitation. I'm delighted. I know a number of you, of course, from Church of the Resurrection, and I've heard all the good things about this church, so I'm delighted to be with you this morning. Uh, greetings from Bishop Stewart. Uh, this is titled Living in the Light of the Resurrection, Back to the Future. I'll explain that in a few minutes. Okay. To the Resurrection. You recall on actually Jesus, as, as John tells us, the third appearance of Jesus after the Resurrection. You recall on actually the very day of Easter, that evening, Christ appeared to the apostles. Remember, they were locked in the upper room, and it comes in, and uh, he, he appears in the room, and he says, Peace be with you. And it says, He breathed on them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Thomas wasn't with them, which leads to our second appearance. One week, you know, the very next Lord's Day, one week later, right, he comes again to the room, and this time he shows himself to Thomas. So here's our third appearance today. And this is a beautiful, the scene is a beautiful contrast when we look at a before and after picture. The first part of the story is really sort of a, a, a living parable of life before the resurrection. It's night. It's dark. They're fishing in the dark all night. And more than just fishing in the dark, they're all alone on the sea. And all the work they go to produces nothing. You know, just futility. Then what happens by the end? It's now dawn. It's dawn and there's light out. And suddenly Jesus is on the shore and he's directing them. And suddenly the same things that led to nowhere previously bring this incredible abundance, an unbelievable abundance. Everything has changed, you know, from darkness to light, from being alone to having Jesus directing them, and from futility, working and nothing, nothing working out, to suddenly things working out beyond the imagination, all happens. The reason I call it Back to the Future is our title today. You know what it reminds me of? Let's think of it this way. When Peter says, hey, let's go fishing, uh, come on, we're Wisconsin here. Uh, this could ring, you'd think, well, this sounds like some recreational type of thing. These are professional fishers. What they were saying is, it's time to go back to work. Isn't that true in our lives? Think about it, with really great things and also with really terrible things. One of those incredible things is we have to go back to life the way it was, back to the future. You know, you have a death in the family, you know, God, but that happens, right? You, or you have something wonderful happens in the family, but then suddenly you realize, it's Monday morning, I've got to go back to work. What, how is, I have to go back to regular life. You know, we have like these intermissions from life. I've got to go back to life. What's life going to look like now? That's why back to the future. Our future is we're going backwards, but the, it won't be the same anymore. We're going back, but it'll be really different. It's the same, but it's profoundly different. So note in the story the prominence of Peter. Okay, this was interesting about Peter here is he's not mentioned, we know he was there because we talk about the apostles, but he's, ne- he's not mentioned at all in the first story on the night of Easter. He's not mentioned at all in the second story with Thomas. We told the apostles are there. He's in the group scene. You know, like one of those uh, movie things at the end saying, you know, second apostle on the left, that kind of thing. He's, uh, he's not identified, but he's the star of the story this morning. So let's focus on, notice he takes the lead with the disciples. He's the one saying, I'm going fishing. You know, I don't know about you, it's time, we have to get back to work. It's time, I need to get, we need to earn a living. We need to get out there and fish. He also, uh, notice he's the one who's the first one to approach Jesus on the shore. 
You know, the apostle Jesus loved is the one who said, it's the Lord. By the way, that's no accident. Uh, this is an interesting sort of footnote. But you know, you say when the apostle John will say, you know, the apostle Jesus loved, it sounds sort of like bragging, you know, like I'm the one mom really loved. But there's a point, if you look carefully. The point is, they normally say that when John understands, gets something before anybody else gets it. It's basically saying love opens our eyes. Love allows us to see what everybody misses. Why does John see, recognize it's the Lord first? It's love. Why does John remember when they run to the tomb? Peter gets there first and doesn't get it. John's at the door and says, he understood. Okay, so we have, he's the first to approach Jesus, and he's the only one to have a conversation with Jesus. Okay, so it's Peter is the star, and let me tell you, it's really easy to underestimate Peter. Because let's face it, very often he's sort of dismissed by a lot of Christians as an unserious sort of rube. Uh, you know, sort of an embarrassment, you know, he, we said I think like impetuous or something, but uh, remember that he has, he has basically sandal and mouth disease. So I had to put it down. Uh, remember at the transfiguration, when Jesus is transfigured, the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit comes in a cloud, he's wondering about setting up tents. You know, well, you had to say something, I suppose. Okay, but you know, what, you know even the, the, the Gospels comment that this is probably not, he didn't know what he was saying. They were being nice. Okay. Also at the foot washing. First of all, he doesn't want to, don't wash my feet at all. Then he says, okay, no, no, just wash all of me. He just doesn't have the, he wouldn't have been a great diplomat. Okay, so it doesn't seem to be his gifting. However, the Gospels tell us that Peter is a profoundly serious person. It is really a mistake to look at those things. Let's look at what the Gospel says about Peter. First of all, he's among the very first people Jesus calls and follows him. You know, it's easier to follow people and there are a lot of other people doing it and things. It seems less of a risk. He's in the very first group. And he says, yes, that's guts. Also, Jesus recognizes there's something really sound here because we know later on he says, you know, upon this rock I will build my church. But the very first time in John's gospel, uh, Jesus meets Peter, he says, he brought him to Jesus, one of the other apostles. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Cephas is Aramaic for rock. You know, Peter is rock. So the very first time Jesus sets eyes on him, he says, you're a rock. Okay, another thing is he is the first apostle to actually recognize that Jesus really is the Messiah. Remember one of those days, he says, who are people saying I am? And they give all sorts of answers. He says, but who do you guys say I am? The guys doesn't actually appear in the Greek text. Okay, uh, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter is the one who speaks up and says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. You know, Jesus said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. So, wow, that's pretty, pretty serious. Then he also is the spork spokesman for the core group of disciples when everybody else is going to cross the lake. Very difficult things after he fed the 5,000 and crosses the lake. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Jesus is being abandoned by crowds. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is a pretty serious person. Jesus, you know, sometimes people, Peter is no coward, by the way. Peter actually doesn't just talk about putting up a fight. He actually draws arms and fights to save Jesus. This is against armed professionals. So the, the thing of Peter is a coward. Other apostles are running for the hills. Peter is there and is willing to fight. 
So Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high, servant's, uh, servant, the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And after Jesus is arrested, what does he do? He actually follows. He can't get in right away because John happened to know people in the high priest's field. He gets in and gets him in. But he doesn't abandon off, go to safety. He actually tries to follow. So we're saying there's, we have to get a real, so we have to understand this is a very serious person we're talking about with Peter. So, but still we get this impression something's not quite right. You can't get it. Something's not quite right. And the same Jesus who called him the rock says at the Last Supper, he says, you know, he says, I love that. He says, look, I can't tell you about these other guys, but whatever they do, I'll be with you. I'll stay with you. And he says, now, Peter's like this, before tomorrow morning at dawn, he's three times you'll deny me. So how do we go from you're the rock from the first time you see it, from all these things, all these things? No, honestly, Peter, by tomorrow morning, you're, you're going to deny me three times, not just once by accident, three times. What's the problem? It's a very serious problem. It's a problem that faces all of us. It's our problem, not just Peter's. So to understand the problem, we need to, let's, let's go back to Peter's best moment, his great profession of faith in Jesus. You're the Messiah. Who do people say I'm? You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Who do you say that I am? When he says this, what happened, what was, this, was the background? Is remember Jesus, uh, you know, so who did say? He says, you're the Messiah. Then what does Jesus say? It's his first prediction of his death. He says, you know, the Son of Man is going to be handed over, you know, and is going to be, be killed. He's going to be put to death. Uh, he, predicts, he predicts his passion and death. And what does Peter say? Far be it from you, Lord. He thinks Jesus is having a bad day. Seriously, he thinks people, Jesus is getting depressed. He's trying to cheer him up. Say, oh, no, no, that's not going to happen. That's the, if you don't, that's the tone of what's going on. Jesus is saying, you know, I'm going to be handed over to death. No, no, it won't work out that way. You know, God will take care of you. And what does Jesus say back to him? He basically stops being Satan's spokesman. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're speaking for Satan, not for God. That's a pretty strong rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Wow, that stings. Okay, now what's exactly going on? Because here's what Jesus was saying. He said, you're the Messiah. And he said, that's true. That's right, 100%. But wait a second, what does it mean to be the Messiah? To be the Messiah means to win the victory, but the victory is the cross. This is really important. The victory is the cross. So to say you're the Messiah and then deny the cross is to miss the point. Those two go together. It's like being a fireman and you're know, signing up and doing all that training and then complaining that there's a fire. You know, they go together, being the Messiah. That's what makes you, the, your victory is the cross. So far, so good. But it's more than that. And here's where the hard part comes. And Jesus actually calls others around. He's talking to make it clear this isn't just the apostles. It says he called the crowd to hear this. Okay, so what does he call them to say? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, we get the wrong message. We think Jesus is looking for admirers. Isn't that great what Jesus wishes? Certainly true. Isn't that great what Jesus did? Jesus said, no, no, you don't get it. Anyone who follows me will follow the same route. If anyone would be my disciple. Not some really noble people, some heroes, some people with saint in front of their name. Anyone would be a disciple. He has to take up his cross and find. He says, Luke's gospel says, daily and follow me. I want to emphasize here, a lot of us as Christians think that we talk about our cross in our life. We think of the cross as sort of a roadblock in the good life. The cross isn't a roadblock. The cross is the road. 
The cross is the way. It's, it's the only way to Easter Sunday is through Good Friday. And that's for all of us. So what happens here? So what's the bad news here? You're saying this is the root. Is you do understand it's not possible to take up that invitation in purely human terms. Why isn't it possible? Well, in purely, purely human terms, sacrifice is a zero-sum game. Think about it. In, think of how the world sees things. You know, in, in purely secular terms, without God, how it looks like. Why would I give up my life for somebody else? Let's say to, to rescue somebody. Why would their life be more important than mine? You might say, well, I'd like to do good if I can help as well. If I'm getting off a, a sinking ship, I could take somebody with me. That'd be great. But it wouldn't make any sense. Why would I trade my life for somebody else's? Doesn't make any sense. Uh, basically, this is a problem the Greeks came up with. They called it they came, the term heroic virtue. Here's what it means. Normally, they would try to say, why should we be good in life, Greek philosophers? And they'd say it's because normally virtue is its own reward. If we do good things, we live a better life, we're happier. But even they had to say that's sometimes not true. You'll die. You know, you'll, you'll lose that job. You know, if you do the right things, it won't always work out. They called it heroic, meaning there was no explanation for it. It's the right thing, but you couldn't find any human justification. Say, I know you're supposed to do it, but don't explain why that's in your interest. You're just going to sort of, I guess, maybe noble, but there's no really very good reason. Okay, so that's where Peter is. You know, it's saying it's one thing for Jesus, but why, how can he take up that invitation? Now, look at today's gospel in that light. Today's gospel shows how everything changes. Something is in, each, in, this, in this passage. The word in Greek, the talk, it's not just any fire. It's a charcoal fire. It's an unusual word. It only appears twice in the New Testament. Guess what's the only other time it appears? There's a charcoal fire on the night when Peter denies Jesus three times. He's warming himself by a, not just any fire, a charcoal fire. So it's a charcoal fire, so we're going to basically have uh, a redux experience here. You know, we're going to go back. We're going to relive this. And I know Scott's going to talk to you about this I'm next week about this, the restoration in detail. But here's, I'm going to look at a different aspect of it. Okay. Everything else, so we have the same charcoal fire, but everything else is turned around 180 degrees. Everything's turned on its head. Think about it. First of all, uh, Peter affirms Jesus. He had denied Jesus three times. Now he affirms Jesus three times. The first time at, at the last, uh, you know, on, the, on Holy Thursday, on Monday Thursday, he said, Peter, you're going you're to betray me, you know, by tomorrow morning. Here, this time he says, you're going to make it to the end. You're going to be a witness to death for me. He predicts that Peter will be faithful to the end. Everything has turned around. So what's happened? How come the same Peter, who was out with three strikes against him in one night, is suddenly this new guy? What's happened? And what happens, there's one other difference in the story. When was that charcoal fire? The charcoal fire was at night. When's this charcoal fire? At the dawn, the dawn of the resurrection. The resurrection has changed everything. Why has it changed everything? Think of this. What, what really thrilled the apostles? Did, every, did all Jews believe in the resurrection? What does the New Testament tell us? Certainly not. Actually, the main leaders didn't. The Sadducees, the actual high priests and things, didn't believe it. They thought that was just a theological opinion. There was a debate among serious people whether there was a resurrection. So that wasn't a clear thing. So it's hard to bet your life on theological speculation. What amazed people is they now knew it was a fact. They met Jesus, a risen man, a man who came back from the dead and saw him again and again. And that's why they choose the witnesses. 
the witness that you say, wouldn't it have made more sense to go to outsiders? You know, wouldn't that have No, no. Here's the trouble with outsiders. Maybe he looks like Jesus. You know, the important thing is these are people who really knew. When you're friends, you go to your friends, and he spent time with them. He had, had dinners with them. He talked with them. Imagine it's the same jokes. Everything was the same. They're saying, that's really Jesus. Honestly, we saw him. He was dead. He's alive. It's really, there is, a, life doesn't end at the grave. You know, thanks. Every, this is no longer th speculation. This is fact. It's empirical fact. That's why they were so excited about the resurrection. It proved that life doesn't end at the grave. Okay, so before Jesus' resurrection, basically, the, here was our human dilemma, is death was a brick wall. There's a whole book in the Bible dedicated to this. It's the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And it's a very unpopular book from pious Christians because it's basically doing an experiment. What would life look like if we assume life just ends at the grave? And it's not very inspirational. It says basically, said, you know, it really doesn't make much difference whether you're a fool or a wise man. It all ends up the same. I have one of my favorite lines, better be a live dog than a dead lion. Dogs, by the way, in the Middle East are dirty, disgusting creatures. They're not cute little pets. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot better a live dog than a dead lion. So basically it was saying, you know, the trouble is in purely human terms. If life ends at the grave, it's sort of the middle of the 20th century talking, you know, absurdity. You know, life doesn't make any sense. With death, life ultimately it doesn't make any difference okay and now suddenly the, uh, these uh, the scriptures themselves testify to this that only with eternal life does it make any difference paul says you know sometimes people give you this this line they'll say well what do you have to lose being a christian to have a better life that's not the scriptures say Paul says, no, Paul, there's no bait and switch here. Paul says, if, if, Christ, if, in, if in Christ we've hoped in this life only, we are of mo all, all people most to be pitied. He's saying, no, no, no I'm, not, I'm not arguing this is going to be a better life here. It's about the cross. I'm arguing that because of the resurrection, this is incredible, but this is not in terms, you can't understand the faith in terms of this life. But the resurrection has changed everything. So Jesus is trans, uh, tr also transformed. You say, well, that's Jesus' rose. What about me? And Jesus says, no, what's true of him is true of us. There's, an, there's, a, there's a Greek, I'll spare the Greek, it's called archon in Greek. It's a word that means, we sometimes translate pioneer. And here's what it basically means about Jesus. This is really neat to me. Is, I used to be a road warrior. I mean, I, I really traveled several times a month for over 30 years. So I've, you know, I'm used to you know, getting on planes and getting off. And I've got to tell you, when you're back where I would be in planes, which was not first class, wasn't business, it was back in the cheapest seats, okay, is one thing you'd notice is when the plane was, you know, they opened the, the door, you look out the, the, the window and you see the first class people leaving. And even though you weren't budging, you know, wait a second, where they are, I will be. Where they are, even though I'm not budging, I know for a fact that, okay, we're, we're getting off, I'm here. You know, and that's where I say, that's what Jesus, death and right, he said, you know, we will also go to death and resuming after that the same way. You know, if he went through death and resurrection. He said, you know, we will also go to death and resurrection. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised. That's why he says the first fruits of those. He's just the first of many. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, so life doesn't end in the grave. It begins there. That's why, by the way, in the church, we celebrate saints' days on the day they died because that's their birthday. It's called in Latin, dies natalis, their birthday, because they're born into eternal life. Christ has transformed death. Death is no longer the end. It's the beginning. It's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a change, not an end. It's not a roadblock. And this frees us. It allows us to give ourselves completely. 
We don't have to worry about balancing things out in this life. You know, the trouble in human terms is we have to balance like the debits and credits have to balance, I am an accountant, the debits and credits have to balance out, you know, now. If they don't balance out, they can't, there's no other time to balance out. You know, if I'm going to be happy, it has to be now. There is nothing else. This means we don't have to balance those things out. We can throw in everything knowing that God covers. You know, the fact is, you know, we don't have to settle things in love. We know. That's why the martyrs sang as they were dying. They knew there was more. That was that hope. And that's why Paul said we can rejoice in our sufferings. Here's why. He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. And what's hope? I want to just say a word I didn't intend to, but sometimes in English the word hope is completely changed meaning. Okay, from what it means in Greek, you know, uh, uh, in, in, in other, over the, we used to normally think the word hope means, um, gee, that would be nice, I hope he's coming, right? I hope she got the job. We, that's normally, it implies doubt. In the Bible, it's the opposite. It, it's blessed assurance. You know the classic example of hope? Is hope is what gets kids like through medical school or, or law school. It's really tough, right? Is they know that, gee, like in medical, in four years, I'll be a doctor. And I, especially in medical school, you have a sure 100% employment, you know, you, everyone will, you know, this is great. And so they can do a lot of hard stuff because they can look ahead and say, I know where this is leading. This is not a dead end. And that's what hope is. Hope is that desire that allows us to get through everything because we know this is going somewhere. And that's what hope is. And he says, the hope doesn't disappoint us. This is leading. So that's why we can give everything knowing God won't let us down. So, uh, and Jesus, by the way, back at that story with Peter, when he said, you know, behind me, Satan, Jesus explained, when he said, I'm going to die, he said, I'm also going to rise. And he said, I tell you, it's like this. The people who try to save their life will lose it. The people who lose their life for my sake will find it. He said, his hope is our hope. Now, how do we live in the light of the resurrection? Then? So the resurrection made it possible for Peter to say yes. That's what made it possible. That's what made it all the apostles, the apostles who had hid and things. With the resurrection, that all changes now. They know the end of the story. It's sort of like during the Second World War, is everyone says, all the people who came from that time, everything changed after D-Day. Another million people, sadly, would die. I mean, combatants would die, let alone civilians, would die between D-Day and the end, you know, the end of the war that May, you know, the following May. However, everybody knew it was a sure thing. It was over for the access. They could not possibly win everything. And so people who were going through everything were saying, I remember one concentration camp survivor died saying, when you see the planes go over, he said, everything changed for him. He said, it's all over for them. <laughs> you know, everything was different. They lived in hope. Now they knew the end of the story. That changed everything. How do we live in the morning light of resurrection? Well, there are two things in that story with Peter that can help us to tell you. How, can that, how do we live a resurrection life now? What's the first thing that Jesus asks? Simon, son of John, do you love me? A focus on God, a focus on Jesus. Do you love me? Are you focusing on me? And the other is, if you do, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Okay, focus on others. So let's talk about some practical lessons on this. How could it affect our lives? Focus on God. One really important thing in our spiritual lives, just a practical thing, is the thing that gets us wrong is we, because we're in a society where everything is about me, especially a consumer society. Everything is about me. I'm the supreme judge of everything. You know, I'm giving the Amazon stars whether you met my expectations. That's, I'm the center of the universe here. So you know, everything is about, is about me. And 
what happens here is we tend even in spiritual things to focus on me. For example, even repentance. We start focusing, it's all become very, very narcissistic. We just keep looking, it becomes like a self-help or self-correction project. It starts looking at me all the time. Or another thing would be um, our spirituality. When we have a spiritual experience, it's about the experience, not about God. Isn't that great how I felt? Sometimes we're that way with worship. There's a reason why we call these worship services. It's not about how I feel, it's about worshiping God. We're serving God, not about getting a computer commodity. How good do I feel after this? Now, there's a wonderful story that tells us what life is like in the resurrection this way. Remember Peter once is called out. Jesus is walking on the, ocean, on the sea. And Peter says, Lord, call me out. He said, sure, come on out. And Peter is like God. He's looking, he's walking on the water. Peter is walking on the water. What happens? You have to read the text carefully. The text says, he saw the wind. He can't see the wind. It means he's looking around. He wasn't looking at Jesus. He was seeing, it's like this. He's walking on the waters, and he said, wow, I'm walking on the water. He's no longer looking at Jesus. It's all and things. Is when you're going at Jesus, it's like those cartoon characters, remember like Wiley Coyote and things, is when you're going over, you're going over a cliff, as long as you don't, you're not looking down, you're not falling. There's sort of a spiritual truth to that. As long as we keep our eyes on Jesus, we walk on water. When we start looking at our experience, we start looking at anything else. It's like I remember when I was a kid, having to learn to play baseball, my father telling me, I'm saying, keep your eye on the ball. When you're trying to <laughs> keep your eye on the ball. And so the first rule in spiritual life that can help us in resurrection life is remember, Jesus is on the shore calling to us like he did that morning. That's how we're going to find out where to put the nets. Not thinking about it, looking, being inspired by their memory. No, he's out there. Look at Jesus. This is what we keep our eyes on Jesus. The second thing we have is focus on, uh, focus on others. And here's what changes everything. Human relationships are transactional. What that means is I, uh, I would put it this way. I use, people resonate, I've heard this, but I, I love this analogy. Have you ever seen somebody looking like in a shop window, like at Christmas time with all the displays and things, and they look, they, they're in rapt attention. And you say, I, I wonder what they're looking at. They must be really interested. They're really looking in that window. And you're nearby, so you take a look at the window and you realize, wait a second, they're not looking at the stuff in the window, they're looking at the reflection. They're trying to, like a guy's trying to straighten his tie or something, you know, they're, they're looking at their own image. This is a beautiful, object lesson of how we are with other human beings as purely humans. It's always, when we see other people, it's all about me. Do they laugh at my jokes? Do they think, you know, it's all about me. Do they reinforce me? Do they make me feel better? You know, it's all about me. And that's why some people are unlovable. Because some people, no matter what we do, we're not going to get anything from it. They're not going to make, they're not going to be grateful. They're not going to be admiring. They're not going to, they're unlovable in human terms because I can't get anything back. It's always about what I'm getting. The beautiful thing is with God, is he can allow us to actually see people. Instead of seeing our reflections, we can actually see what God sees, an actual human being, not our reflection. You know, that's, it, it changes everything. This is why we have a beautiful example of this, is notice in Matthew 25 where it talks about the judgment. And Jesus says to the righteous, he says, you know, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And we know the whole list, I was naked, etc. Something we might miss in that story is they're surprised. When did we ever do that? And they didn't say, well, we did it for you, Lord. No, no. Here's what they're telling us. 
they weren't doing it because God told them to do it. They weren't doing it because they saw you. No, they loved the way God loved. It was just natural to them. They saw what God saw, and they loved it. They had God's eyes. If we see what God sees, we'll love what God loves. And we see with God's eyes, we can love with God's heart. So let our prayer today be that Christ's resurrection, and the beautiful thing of the resurrection, makes it possible for us to say yes. We don't have to balance. We know that God has us. We can throw ourselves wholeheartedly. We don't have to, in human terms, we live in a world of scarcity. I want to be generous, but there might not be enough for me. I want to be generous, but how do I know there'll be enough? With God, we know that's not true anymore. It's more like Elijah's uh, pitcher and things. We can pour out and pour out be more room for God to pour in. We can pour ourselves in a way we could never pour. Before. We can say yes. So what can we pray for today is let us pray for the grace henceforth to focus our eyes on the risen Jesus. That's a, stop looking at ourselves and start looking at Jesus. And secondly, let's pray for the grace for God. Lord, give me your eyes so I can see what you see. When you, you love, when you see people, you see, you, see, you see that, you love that. Now, by the way, what does God see in people? Well, here's what it is. What the saints tell us is what God sees is his own image. That's what's lovable. Um, I'll tell you, I didn't intend to, but I'll tell you a family story here. You might make it clear. Is when I was uh, small, my favorite person in the world uh, was my maternal grandmother. I was her favorite grandchild, which is an utter mystery to the family. Okay, but for some reason, I was her favorite grandchild. I would go spend a few weeks every summer with her and things. I was her favorite grandchild. After a few years, one day I found out the mystery. The mystery was, I was, she was talking and mentioning the fact that when my grandfather, you know, when they first got married, right after they got married, he had to go off for five months uh, uh, doing lumberjack things, French Canadians, you know, do a lumberjack thing. Uh, you know, for the, for the winter, you have to do you have to work all year, and you know it's, it's it's cold and you can't do other work. So he's doing doing a lumberjack thing. She's alone five months with her in-laws. Okay, and then she showed me a picture that wasn't in the family album, and I had never seen it before. And suddenly, you know what that picture was, don't you? Who was in the picture? Is my 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 grandfather in a lumber camp? And what did I see? I saw me. I'm the spitting image of my grandfather. When at that age, I was the spitting image of my grandfather. Didn't look like it later on, but I mean, I was him. I mean, you would have thought he'd taken a picture of me. That's what the special thing was. Well, God has that gift in us. Every one of us is created in the image of God. And with God's grace, we can see what God sees. We can see, despite all the tarnish, we can see the image, and it changes everything. It's like a person who's into silver is they can go to a flea market, and they can see that, hey, oh, that's just, just, that's just plate, and it's, you know, that's, not, that's junk. But then they can actually something that to the untrained eye looks like it's all rusty and corroded and things like that's it that's real that's actually solid silver it's the real thing they can see beyond the corrosion they can see the silver god can give us that grace it's a grace from god but one he gives us that's what love is we can actually see what god sees and when we see what god sees we'll love it so we can pray so pray to to keep our eyes on jesus and pray for that special grace to see what god sees his image in every man woman and child no matter what they've done he sees that image he saw it in the thief on the cross. He sees it everywhere for us to see it and act accordingly. Amen. Amen.